Well, it's good to see one of you here today, and we're excited about uh, God's Word, opening it up today. We're in John chapter 18, as you know, and uh, we're traveling back today to a garden. A garden of quietness and prayer, a garden of contemplation and conflict. This familiar story of the garden confrontation is centered around three men. Judas, the disciple that betrayed, betrayed his master. Peter, the disciple who sought to take the situation into his own hands, and the Savior himself. There are three men and three gardens in the scripture as well in the accounts of the great warfare that we spoke of last week. That warfare between good and evil, God and the evil one. The first was the Garden of Eden, where Adam walked with God and then disobeyed him. Adam, as you know, was cast out of that garden. Gethsemane was the place where the last Adam entered the garden in complete obedience to offer himself as a sacrifice and to provide salvation to all who would believe in him. The last garden, we're not going to get to that today. (laughs) Revelation 21 and 22 where there will be no more death, no more curse. Warren Wiersbe sums it up well in one of his little books where he states, Eden was the garden of disobedience and sin. Gethsemane was the garden of obedience and submission. And heaven, heaven shall be the eternal garden of delight and satisfaction to the glory of God. That's why we sing about heaven. That's why we talk about the reality that we know. When we know Christ, we know that we are going to be there. We know that there is no question about it. I remember in 2011, February 26th, I uh, woke in a hotel room to a phone call that my mom had passed away. And I knew it was coming. You know many times when those things are coming. And as I received the call, I thanked my dad and I praised my God that my mom was done suffering and was in his presence. Those are times when you can rejoice even in the midst of sorrow. Those are times when you can say, yes, Lord, though I hurt I also rejoice. Today, we want to look at a difficult, difficult um, situation in the Garden of Gethsemane. We touched on it last week. We began to see it. We saw the relationship to a point of Jesus and Peter, but we're going to delve into that a little bit more today. And then we want to see the heart of Jesus as well. John chapter 18 and verse 10, Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? I want us to notice this morning a sword of rebellion. A sword of rebellion. 
all of the disciples, according to Matthew, back in Matthew chapter 26, had affirmed that they were devoted to the Savior earlier in the same evening. Peter was the first, and then the others joined him. In fact, it says, Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all of the other disciples said the same. Now, that's important, because when we go into the garden, who do we think of that failed the Savior? Who do we think of that did the wrong thing? We only hear Peter's name, don't we? But all of them said the exact same thing. None of them spoke up and stepped forward. In the garden, Peter went ahead to prove his devotion. But his devotion was misled. Now, it's not the first time that Peter spoke so brashly to the Savior. It's not the first time that Jesus said something to Peter and Peter said, well, I don't, I, I don't think that's exactly right. Let me give you some examples. Luke chapter 5, early on in the relationship, Peter, that outspoken leader that he was, was fishing and Jesus came up and, and uh, Peter and Andrew and the rest of those that they worked with were done fishing for the nighttime, the early morning, and So Jesus got into his boat and they pushed off a little into the lake, into the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus began to teach from the boat. And Peter, of course, he had been up all night fishing. He was tired. He was listening. He was rejoicing in what the Savior said. And then Jesus finished. I don't know whether he said amen, whether they sang just as I am. I I don't know what closed it, but it was finished. And He turned to Peter and he said, Peter, let's push out a little bit into the water and put down your nets. I don't know about you, but I I can see Peter. I relate to Peter. Sometimes I have a big mouth like that. Not when I was making the announcement this morning. I was just fine there. But And Peter said... Lord, Lord, we've been out fishing all night, and we've caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, we'll go. You know what uh, Peter was saying, don't you? He was saying, we're going to catch anything, but don't, nothing, but don't blame me. This is your fault, Lord, because you're the one who wants us to go out there. Have you ever been there? You ever tried to blame God for something when he kind of moved you along? Lord, I'll I'll do that, but I I just don't think I ought to. I I just don't think that now's the right time. I don't think that now is the time that I... I remember sitting in my office one day studying on a Saturday morning. I was finishing my study. I wasn't just... Well, I really was just beginning. It had been one of those weeks. And I had been in the office Saturday morning early, and I said, Lord, I have to have this time... And I heard a knock on the office door, outside office door. Maybe they don't know that I'm in here. Other than the fact that there's a car there, you know, and those type of things. I finally said, Lord, Lord, I don't have time for this. And the Lord just kept moving me to go. And so I went to that back door and I opened the door. And a man said to me, are you the preacher? And I said, well, yes. And he said, I need Jesus. I need to accept him as my Savior. 
What do you do at a time like that? I, I know what I did. I confessed a little bit of sin real quickly. And I took him in. And we had a great time together as he prayed and asked Jesus Christ to be his Savior. Sometimes we get to those places that we say, Lord, not now. Now's not the time. Peter said, Lord, now's not the time to go fishing. We did that and it didn't work. But he pushed out into the sea, let down the nets, and Scripture tells us they caught a load of fish that they could not pull in. The other boats had to come over and they had to help them. And Peter very wisely got in his, on his knees, probably in the bottom of the boat, and said, Lord, depart from me. I am a sinful Sinful man. Now you and I, one instance like that, and we would have got it, wouldn't we? A little while later, Peter and the disciples were told by Jesus to head out one evening across the Sea of Galilee. And a storm came up and the the boat was being tossed about. And all of a sudden, Jesus came, Scripture's words here, walking to them on the water. And he would have gone by them, except they thought it was a ghost. And they called out. And Jesus said, don't be afraid, it's, it's me. And Peter, he's always the one who speaks. He's always the one who says the right thing, doesn't he? Peter says, Lord, if it's you, bid me come to you on the water. I really feel for Peter because so many times Peter uh, is, is accused of all of the things that he's done. Like this one. Look at Peter. He sank when he was walking on the water. I would rather say, look at the rest of the disciples. They were still in the boat. They didn't even have enough faith to try. Peter walked upon the water. And scripture says he beginning to sink. Called out to the Savior. Beginning to sink. I don't think the water got up to his knees. That's, that's my thought. Doesn't say in scripture, doesn't say at all. I'm not sure that his ankles got wet. Because he knew where he had to call real quickly. In the garden, they had no doubt misunderstood Jesus' words earlier that evening when he said, if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. Luke chapter 22. Their misunderstanding though came because of the failure that they had in their hearts when those uh, soldiers finally came. I want us to notice this rebellion, a sort of rebellion. Rebellion will happen because Peter has not only misunderstood, but he also has a loyalty that is blind to what Jesus has been telling him. He carried a sword and promised defense, but he failed, and no doubt he was embarrassed. To make matters worse, Jesus told him to put away the sword. And remember, he had, we mentioned last week, he had cut off Malchus's ear. Jesus had to clean up the mess that Peter had made. His loyalty was touching, but once again, it, he missed out on what God's plan really was. Paul says in Romans chapter 10 and verse 2, speaking about Israel, For I bear witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Zeal without knowledge in religion often leads men astray. Peter had a great zeal, but his zeal was in his energy, in himself. 
And he was so focused on what he felt he should do that he forgot to listen to his Savior. Now, this rebel also received rebuke. And we, again, mentioned this last week. Jesus told Peter to put his sword into his sheath. That's important. Earlier in the evening, Peter had been rebuked by the Savior. Peter said, I will never uh, uh, deny you. And yet in the midst of this, he, Jesus said to him, Peter, you'll deny me three times before the cock crows in the morning. This is the second time now that he has argued with Jesus. And he comes out in the wrong way, receiving this rebuke. He was chastised for not understanding God's will. You see, in spite of constant teaching about Jesus' death, Jesus teaching his disciples about his death. And if you want some examples, you can look at chapter 3, verse 14, chapter 8, verse 28, chapter 12, verses 32 and 33. The disciples did not understand what he meant. I I don't understand it, but they didn't understand that he said he was going to die and the purpose of it. Why did Peter fail on this special night? He had argued with the Lord. Not me. I'll never deny you, he said. What about when Jesus was praying? Remember Jesus got into the garden with Peter and the other disciples and he said to them, Now, watch and pray. And Peter, along with the rest, what did they do? They watched the inside of their eyelids and slept. He imitated the enemies who came to discover that the sword of the Spirit is the weapon of God's servant, not the sword of metal. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 17 talks about that sword. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the dividing of soul and of spirit and of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Jesus told Peter, just as we need to understand that the sword that we need to be holding on to is not that one that's uh, wrapped around their belt, not the one that's tied to their waist that they can use to a battle in a great sword fight like the old movies used to have. No, no. The sword that they need is the sword of the Spirit, God's Word. And we need that today as well. Peter learned that. He learned it. It took him a while, but he finally got it. By the time of Pentecost, about 40 days or so after the resurrection, he had learned that lesson and he used that sword. And Peter that night, day slayed 3,000 souls. That's how many came to trust in his Savior as their own Savior that one day. Now, all of this for us to understand that we need to learn lessons just like that as well. We need to understand, even when we fail, that God is teaching us. We need to learn that even when we drop the spiritual ball, if you will, God is there to pick it up and get it back into our hands and to say, shoot again. He's there to help us. Because he uses us 
to accomplish his world, uh, will in this world. Jesus didn't need Peter's protection. In Matthew, we read that Jesus turned to Peter at the time when he pulled out his sword. He turned to Peter and said, Peter, don't you realize I could have called on the Father to send 12 legions of angels to defend me if I needed that? And I'm sure in Peter's mind he's saying, what do you, what do you mean if you meet, needed it? There's a cohort of the Roman army here. There's high priest guards here and they're going to carry you away if you needed it. Well, you see, Peter, it's not the right time. It's not the time. This is the time for Peter to listen. This is the time for Peter to grow. This is the time for you and for me to say, Lord, teach me this type of yieldedness. Of yieldedness of my life to your word. Not only do I want us to see this morning the cup of rebellion, but I want us to see a cup of submission as well. Look down with me in verses 11, 12, 13, 14. Peter said, Jesus said to Peter, put your sword in a sheath. Shall I not drink of the cup that the Father has given me? The cup that's referred to here is that cup of suffering uh, that comes and suffering uh, because of separation from the Father that he would endure for you and for me. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and they bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Peter had a sword in his hand, but our Lord had a cup in his. We have seen Peter resisting the Father's will, but Jesus was accepting of his Father's will. He had prayed in the garden at least three different times, we know, If it be thy will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. That cup that Jesus bore represented the suffering and the separation from the Father that he would endure for you and for me. I don't think we understand. I don't think we understand what separation from God is going to be like. Can I give you one word? that gives a a good description of it, that one word is hell. Because in hell, each and every person who's there will be totally separated from our Heavenly Father. And Jesus experienced just at that time when the back of his Father was turned to him, a little bit in that time, a short time, of what hell is going to be like. And he had no desire for it, except, except that what he accomplished was the salvation of our souls. Jesus was able to accept the cup because he knew that his Father had given it from his own hand. He came to do the Father's will and to finish the work that God had given him to do. Jesus, as Jesus, we need never fear the cups that the Father gives to us. We need not fear the cup because the Father has given everything that comes into our lives to us in love. 
The Father always treats us in line with his love. He never treats us with disdain. He never treats us out of anger. Even his discipline is out of love. Now, wait a minute. Sometimes we as parents, as we prepare to apply the rod of discipline to the seat of learning with our children, sometimes we say, this is going to hurt me more than you. And we're trying to help ourselves, not our kids. Because it doesn't hurt us more. Well, sometimes the hand can get sore. But that's not the point that's there. But listen, that is true for our God. Because He is training us, even in times of discipline, out of His great love. And He knows the final outcome. He is teaching us. He knows what we can handle, and he brings through that teaching the lesson that we need to learn. The cup that Jesus was going to partake of that night included trials. I'm not talking about difficulties as we talk about trials. I'm talking about literal trials. Jesus was taken to Annas, as we read, the father-in-law of Caiaphas. Now, a little bit of background. Annas was appointed high priest by Quirinius in about A.D. 6. You might remember that name around the time of the birth of the Savior as well. Since the Romans did not like the high priest to have uh, too much power, they rotated, they switched the high priest, sometimes annually. As a matter of fact, while Annas, by the temple, had been appointed high priest, he had five sons and one son-in-law, that's Caiaphas, who served under him as high priest. But Annas was the power behind the seat. And so when they took Jesus, they took him first to Annas, because he was the one who had been appointed by the Jews as high priest. This was the first of six trials, all illegal, because of when they were held and the way that they were carried out. Much is going to be said about these trials next week, We're not going to talk much about it today. It's interesting that Caiaphas is quoted here by the statement that it says, it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Back chapter 11. Chapter 11, if you're with me, in verse 49 to 52, we read about that. And I know we've heard it here in the past few weeks, but let's think about it again. the plot to kill Jesus came forward and many people got together to discuss it. And the chief priests and the Pharisees, verse 47, gathered the council and said, what are we to do for this man performs many signs? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come to take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, one of the council, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for one, for you, that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Now, sometimes a statement like that we can get confused on. Was this prophecy that God was giving out? Well, it was in a sense, but... Caiaphas was giving it not because he believed that Jesus was Messiah. Rather, he was saying, 
if we get rid of one person, the nation can stand on its own. We don't have to give in. But he was not understanding the reality that his statement was the truth of the plan of God in seeing that Jesus would die one man, not just for the nation of Israel, but for the whole world. The disciples had scattered, but later John, though he's not named, probably it was John. Some hold to some other ideas. Probably John came back and Peter as well found their way back to where Jesus was to know what would happen next. Now, I want us to see yet this morning this cup of denial, the third cup that we're talking about. Verse 15, Simon Peter followed Jesus. We're back in chapter 18 now. And so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl, who kept watch at the door, and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. And they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. Peter would have done better to have stayed away. Having been corrected by the Savior in the garden, he didn't seem to lift up then, but rather he slipped into a mode of defeat. He came, he stood outside, he was quiet, he waited, he finally came in, and then he kind of hunkered around that fire. Interesting, and let me just give an aside here. John gives such specific details to help us to know the truth of this. He doesn't just say there was a fire there. He describes it as a charcoal fire. He describes it as a charcoal fire because everybody was cold. It was cold that evening. And everybody was around the fire warming themselves. Very specific as he gives that. Now the denial begins in verse 17. And we read it already. When Peter was allowed into the courtyard, that servant girl at the door asked if he was one of the disciples. Now the Greek uh, indicates that the servant was expecting a negative response. Peter did not disappoint. He denied that he was one of the disciples. Interestingly, this series of denials is recorded in all four of the Gospels. Could be a reminder that as the leader of the disciples betrayed in this way, we all will have failures in our walks. We need to keep that in mind. But we also need to keep in mind that our Savior is ready to call us back to himself. I don't know why, but John is also the only one who records the restoration of Peter in John chapter 21. We'll get back to that in a couple of months, but we'll get to it. As Peter waited around the fire, he all but invited the question of if he was with Jesus. The psalmist said, Blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. Who were these people that were around this fire? Well, they were soldiers. They were people who had been there in the garden with, with the uh, ones who came to get Jesus. 
And so Peter was standing there, if I can just be, you know, quick in one word, with the enemy. And he was standing there, very obvious who he was. Verse 25, again, with a negative expectation, he is asked if he knows the Savior, and he denies again the second time. When we remain in a place of failure, a place of temptation, when we warm ourselves in the fire of the world, we leave ourselves open for more failure. And Peter was right there, ready to give in again. Now notice the final denial as it's given here. Malchus, the man whose ear was struck by Peter's sword and healed by Jesus' hand, had a relative who also was around this fire. No doubt he was there in the garden and he recognized the man who had swung the sword against his near relative. He spoke knowingly and he expected a positive answer according to the Greek language when he saw, said and saw Peter in the garden. The idea is given that others took up the statements as well. He said, hey, this man was there in the garden. Aren't you the one who, who cut my, my relative's ear? And others began to say, well, is that right? Is that true? Yes, we were, we were there as well. You, I think you were the one. You sound like they began to pile up on him. And Scripture tell you, tells us through Matthew that Peter began to swear and deny that he knew Jesus. Now, this is not blasphemies like we think of swearing today. He was probably taking, calling upon himself a curse. If this is not true, then let me be accursed. I do not know the man. And of course you know the story. Just at that time, at the time of the denial, the rooster crowed and Peter, Luke says, went out and wept bitterly. John just says the facts. The rooster crowed. Right after the denial, and it's done. Luke, Matthew, give us a little bit further story. Luke tells us that at the exact moment as well, and I don't understand exactly how it is. I did a lot of reading on it. One man said Jesus was probably moving through that upper room, and there was a window there, and right at the time of the crow of the rooster, he turned and his eyes caught Peter's eyes at that time. They were able to see. I don't know how it happened, but I know it happened. Their eyes met. And Peter went out and wept bitterly, according to Luke. When we sin, we do not physically catch the Savior's eye. But if we are in the Word, if the Word is in us, our hearts should be weeping bitterly over the sin that we commit. Remember that to the perfect God of the universe, sin is sin. Whether we deny him, whether we turn on him within our hearts, doesn't matter what the sin might be. Our hearts should be broken over that sin. Now, Scripture gives us another interesting little picture here. Psalm 30 and verse 5 We read that weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. The crowing of the cock, the rooster crow, was a sign that a new day had come. We could perhaps gain some positive things here by comparing Judas and Peter. 
Peter wept over his sins and repented. Judas admitted his sin, but never truly repented. Judas admitted, experienced remorse, but not repentance. Godly sorrow leads to true repentance. And the sorrow of the world leads to death. Back in the 18th century, there was a man who could identify with Peter. Oh, I'm sure there's a lot of us who could, but this is just a point, an illustration for you. He had been saved out of a life of sin through George Whitfield's ministry in England. Shortly after that, at the age of 23, Robert Robertson Robinson wrote a hymn, actually the last hymn that we sang before the message this morning. Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing. Call for songs of loudest praise. Sadly, after Robinson wrote that hymn, he wandered away from his Savior. Like the prodigal son, he journeyed into that distant country. Until one day, he was traveling by stagecoach and sitting beside a young woman who was engrossed in her book that she was reading. And she ran across a verse that she thought was beautiful. And she asked him what he thought of it. And he read this, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. And he burst into tears and said, Madam, I am the poor, unhappy man that wrote that hymn many years ago. And I would give a thousand worlds if I had them to enjoy the feelings that I had then. Come, thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing. Call for songs of loudest praise. Peter went out that night and he wept. And he got on his knees and he began the journey that ends a few chapters later with renewed fellowship, renewed commissioning with his Savior. I don't know where you are today, but you could be like Robert Robinson. You could be like Peter. You could be in that situation where you've allowed yourself to get cold. You've allowed yourself to turn. Oh, I'm not saying you're out in sin and carnality, but you're just not where you ought to be. Maybe you're here today and you have turned and you're back in the world. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Let me tell you. As Jesus will tell Peter, and as Peter learns so well, your Savior is waiting with open arms for you to come back.
No, no, you haven't lost your salvation. Don't misunderstand. You've lost the joy of that faith. Because you're not living in obedience to the one who saved you. I encourage you today, as we close, as we sing, to ask yourself, where do I stand today with my Savior? Am I in fellowship where I need to be? Lord, speak to my heart. Draw me back. Let's pray. As we pray, let me remind you that in a moment, there will be elders here at the front of the church, at the doorways, people who are ready to talk with you, pray with you. Their desire is to help you in your relationship, in your walk with the Savior. Lord, you've given us so much as example through this passage of how we can come Come back to where we need to be. Fall on our knees, weeping over our sin, placing our faith and our hope back in the reality that you always desire what is best for us. I pray, Lord, that if there are those today who are struggling in any area of their lives, Lord, don't let them leave this place. Until they get back in the fellowship, Lord, that they have lost. And if there are those that have not trusted you as Savior, Lord, help them to realize. Help them to realize that Jesus, your son, came to this earth, went to the cross, 